0: Genesis 33. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab the Pew Bible in front of you. We'll be on page 28. Uh, Like always, if there are questions or comments uh, this morning, you can go to slido.com and type in RevCDA in the prompt and either anonymously or non anonymously, if you're brave, ask a question and we'll take a look at those. at the end this morning. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I just want to pray for these people gathered in this place this morning. God, we are just a very small fraction of your body that is doing something similar all around the world uh, in, a, in a vast array of languages and in a variety of different ways. Uh, we, as your people, are coming to worship you to sit at your feet, to hear your word, to um, both be ministered to by your spirit and by your spirit minister to others. Uh, God, I just pray that in these next moments as we take a look at this passage and and ask the question, what can we learn from it, uh, that you would speak. God, we are all coming into Sunday morning with a whole week's worth of stuff. Some of that stuff is awesome. Some of that stuff is really painful. And uh, I just pray that you would um, meet us where we're at, help us navigate uh, the things that come up, bubble up out of our hearts this morning, and um, just bless your people. God, I pray for um, the Rolkin family as they recover with a new baby. God, I pray for Matt Jenkins, who is uh, headed to Arizona to go live with his sister God, thank you for your faithfulness in in healing his leg and and all of the the many weeks and months of of, um, therapies. God, I pray for the process that uh, the Lambuses are going through to help him uh, move this morning. God, I I pray that you would be with your people, both in this room and outside of it. In Jesus' name, amen. So this week I went to uh, Seaside, Oregon for what's called the Church Venture Northwest Annual Enrichment Conference. Uh, church Venture Northwest, if you're unfamiliar, is what we call the covenant community of churches that we are a part of. This is, sometimes I call it our church network. We are an autonomous uh, local church, but we partner with about 250 churches throughout Alaska, Washington, Oregon, and Idaho in this covenant community. And at once a year in March in Seaside, Oregon, there's a big conference and there's a guest speaker and there's worship and there's a business meeting, which super fun. Uh, it is fun. I, I said that. I said I always say it that way, and Jake called me out on it last time. You don't think it's fun? No, I do. I do think it's fun. Uh, I enjoy the business meeting. Um, but one of the things I got a chance to do on Tuesday night was I met up with five other guys uh, in that were partnering with me in a cohort called Convergence. Uh, some of you may remember for uh, about three years from 2019 to 2021, I went to Portland once a month uh, for a few days to do some um, pastoral leadership training. And I was a part of this group of guys, and are six of us, and then we came from all different churches around the, the covenant community. And we graduated at the end of 2021, and we hadn't seen each other since. And so we all determined we would we would meet up in Seaside. And so we did, and we were having dinner. And there's so many different personalities in our, our cohort and it's there, we really enjoy each other's company and we have fun. And, and we were talking and I, we, my buddy, Phil, who is kind of the, the crotchety old man of our cohort, um, he, I think he's 50, I don't know. <laughs> He'd like, he would like that title. Um, he said something that was um, uh, crotchety, And I responded by calling him a name. And I'm not going to tell you what the name I called him was. It is inappropriate. Everybody laughed. He laughed. Uh, And the conversation moved on. And I woke up Wednesday morning, and I was uh, sitting before the Lord, had my Bible open, praying through the kind of pattern of prayer that I pray for in the morning, and I got to the Lord's Prayer, and I, and I prayed, Give, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and immediately like just this vision of that thing I said to Phil last night came up in my mind. And I thought, I was just joking. Everybody thought it was funny. It's no big deal. But the Spirit of God said, no, you weren't joking. There's always a bit of truth in joking, and it was mean, and you hurt him and you need to apologize. And I went, oh, man. And so, uh, because I'm a coward, I texted him (laughs) and said, hey, that thing I said last night, that was inappropriate, and I'm really sorry. And he texted back and goes, oh, man, I thought it was funny. It's not a big deal. (laughs) But... I still felt like, yeah, it probably was a big deal and I needed to apologize. And so we worked it out, and I talked to him in person later that day as well. But but it's an illustration in my mind of how hard it is for me to ask forgiveness. I just I wanna I wanna just kind of gauge the room a little bit. How many of you feel that way? That like it's really hard to ask forgiveness? Show of hands. Yeah, okay, good. Uh, there's just something in you that's like, oh, I don't really want to do that. But that's not everybody, right? Some of you, maybe you find it very easy. Is there anybody in the room that's like, no, I have no problem saying, like, I'm wrong, here's nobody? Maybe what half a person? There's one, okay, yeah. I think it's, I think it's a smaller percentage, but it's, it's there. What about the flip side? How, how many people feel really good about forgiving people? It's really easy to forgive people. A couple. Okay, is it hard to forgive people when you've been hurt? Yeah. Situational. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, so we're going to talk about forgiveness this morning, uh, if you hadn't guessed. (laughs) Uh, And and before we dive into this passage, I I need to make a caveat. So so when we come to the Scriptures, the Scriptures are our authority. They are um, the infallible Word of God over our lives, and we are meant to understand them in a way that we understand that there is a purpose that they were written. And and sometimes there's a couple purposes. Maybe we could say there's the Holy Spirit's purpose, because the Holy Spirit writes the Scriptures. But there's also a bunch of human authors that partnered with the Holy Spirit to write the Scriptures, and they have a purpose. And part of doing the work of Bible study is figuring out why they wrote what they wrote. But when we're asking the word, uh, the question interpretation, if you've ever heard that word. The question we're asking is, what does this mean and why was it written? And that's usually one answer. It might be a couple answers. There's some parts of like the, the prophets and stuff where there's a couple different meanings kind of layered onto each other. But primarily when we interpret the Bible, we're asking the question, what does this mean singular? But sometimes we ask a different question. We ask the question, what can it teach us? And this is the question of application. And when we ask an application question, what can it teach us, that, that list could be really long, depending on the passage. You can glean, God's, God's word is, is, is amazing in that you can read the same passage many, many times and apply it to your life in many different ways. That doesn't change the answer to the question, what does it mean or why was it written? But it illustrates the fact that God's word is powerful and it applies to our lives differently in different seasons and different ways. So really quickly, I wanna go over an Im- what I think is the interpretation of this passage, and then we're gonna move to an application for most of our time together. The interpretation, I think here, the reason why did Moses write this chapter is that God is continuing to be faithful to his promise to Jacob. After chapter, after chapter, after chapter of Jacob's failure and his backstabbing and his deception, he's gonna finally meet up with his brother Esau, and he's afraid it's gonna go badly, but it doesn't. By the grace of God, Esau has a heart of love and acceptance and forgiveness. Jacob is being blessed and is successful as he goes back into the promised land, the land that God has promised him, the land that was promised to Abraham, God's promise to Abraham that's going to end in Jesus, the Messiah, who is going to be the solution to all the problems in our world. Like that is going forward. And I think very simply, this chapter illustrates that God is good to Jacob. For application this morning, though, I want to ask a different question. I want to ask the question, what can we learn about forgiveness from this text? Now, again, to be clear, I think there's a lot to learn about forgiveness. I don't think Moses was like, you know what? I need to write a treatise on forgiveness. That's not why this is in here, but because the application we can get from the Bible is many, even when the interpretation is one. I think there's a lot that we can glean from this on the subject of forgiveness. So the first thing I want to point out here is that forgiveness begins with God. If you were here last week, we talked about Jacob wrestling with God. Jacob goes into this process of seeking forgiveness with his brother after he has been made right with God. And this is, this is exactly my experience this weekend I am hesitant to seek forgiveness. I often don't even realize I need to seek forgiveness, that I've wronged someone. It doesn't. That realization doesn't come quickly to me. That impulse to go out and make it right with my brother or sister doesn't come quickly to me, and God kind of has to get after me in order to get it done. This is not the case for everyone. I have a friend named Clara. Some of you know Clara. Uh, I worked with her uh, at a daycare for, uh, my, my, my wife wouldn't like it if I said that, at a child care facility um, for a number of years. And she would come to work, often on a Monday morning, and and, and want to talk to me. And so we'd go into my office, and she'd be very so, sober and sincere, and she'd be like, I just need to apologize for that thing I said on Friday. And I'd go like, what thing? You know, I was I was over here, and I said this thing. like, oh. And I'd have to like, Say, oh, uh, yeah, I forgive you. I'm not really sure what you did. But, But she was so attuned to just the slightest chink in her heart. Right, this just very little like, oh yeah, my motive was wrong there or that thing, maybe that was misunderstood. And, and she was so open to the power of the Holy Spirit in this part of her life that she was just like, oh yeah, I need to apologize for that. And, and half the time I was oblivious to it because that's just the kind of person I am. But she was really, really beautifully aware of God working in her heart and saying, hey, I, you, you need to make it right with the people that you've wronged. Like I said, to my shame, I am not like that. God needs to grab me and shake me a little bit in order to feel the weight of my sin towards others. But God is good. God is gracious. God gives us so much to spurn us towards to forgiveness. In Luke 15, we read this story. You're probably familiar. Uh, Jesus also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants." So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. Let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is one of the many stories where Jesus unveils to us the heart of God for his people. No matter the offense, no matter how you've squandered your opportunity or your resources or turned your back on God, no matter what, God loves you and is running out to forgive you if you would return to him. And I don't know, maybe some of you aren't Christians this morning. I don't know all of you. This applies to you. Whatever you're doing, whatever your life has been, whatever a hundred different reasons you have for God to be angry with you, the heart of God towards you is one of love one of compassion, one of joy to see you return. Being forgiven by God is the fountain from which we find the resources to seek forgiveness from others. Jacob is prepared to ask forgiveness from his brother by his encounter with God the night before. Now that he has wrestled down this idea, does God really care for me? Will God really be there for me? Now he has what he needs. To forgive or to seek forgiveness. Sorry, Ephesians four thirty two says, "And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ." And this is the flip side of our encounter with Christ. Our hearts should be softened to forgive others because we have been forgiven by Christ. And we lie to ourselves, right? We we say that we haven't offended God that badly. But that other person has hurt us so much that forgiving them would be impossible. But the reality is Jesus went to the cross for your sin. We we sang about it this morning. The Son of God was brutally tortured and murdered because of what you have done. I am guilty before God to the extent that Jesus was killed. And we say things like, you know, they said that thing behind my back and I will never forgive them. They cheated me out of thousands of dollars, unforgivable. And, and even, the, and those are maybe silly things. Some of us have experienced horrific violence at the hands of others. There are things in some of our personal stories where we could say, this was done to me and this is a thing that should never be done to any human being. But the reality is, you have done to Jesus a way worse thing than anyone else has ever done to you. Charles Spurgeon says this, "'Brother, if any man thinks ill of you, "'do not be angry with him, "'for you are worse than he thinks you to be. "'If he charges you falsely on some point, "'yet be satisfied, for if he knew you better, "'he might change the accusation, "'and you would be no gainer by the correction. "'If you have your moral portrait painted "'and it is ugly,' be satisfied, for it only needs a few blacker touches, and it would be still nearer the truth. Spurgeon has it right here. We have a rosier picture, generally, of the state of our souls than reality. And when we hold our lives up to the penalty that Jesus paid on the cross to redeem us, we have to realize that we have been forgiven much. And this realization, you'd think that like in, in the world that we live in, this realization of like looking on yourself and seeing how dark it is in there, that we don't want to do that. We don't want to think happy thoughts and self-esteem and positive declarations. But the thing is, understanding the, sinness, the sinfulness of your soul is not motivation to despair. It is motivation to rejoice that you have been given a gift in Christ that you can live out of with joy and you can also freely give away to others. Forgiveness begins with God. But secondly, forgiveness also begins with you. Now we're going to get into our text. Genesis 33, verse 1. Now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming toward him with 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two slave women. He put the slaves and their children first, Leah and her children next, Rachel and Joseph last. He himself went on ahead and bowed to the ground seven times until he approached his Brother. Now, obviously, he is arranging his family in order of least loved to most loved. Not great. But he is going first, right? He's not in the back. He goes into the front and he initiates this conversation with his brother. He accepts the responsibility for what he has done. Esau could still be wanting to kill him for all he knows, and he's at the front of the column. Jesus says in Matthew 5, if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Go first and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Jesus says that reconciliation with someone you have wronged is more important than church. Jesus is speaking in Galilee to a group of Galileans up in northern Israel about a worship practice, animal sacrifice that takes place in Jerusalem. That's a four-day walk. Jesus is saying, if you're down there and you've got your sacrifice and you go, you know what? I hurt that person. You need to set that sacrifice down, walk the four-day trip home, get settled with the person that you've wronged, and then walk the four-day trip back to make your sacrifice. And we don't want to do this work because it's hard. It's just, it's easier to just get new friends, isn't it? I love that, uh, this is, I don't know if this is a, is a hip song anymore, but there, there used to be a band called Godier. Their, their song, somebody that I used to know used to be really popular, I'm gonna read the chorus. It says, but you didn't have to cut me off, make out like it never happened and that we were nothing. I don't even need your love, but you treat me like a stranger, and that feels so rough. No, you didn't have to stoop so low, have your friends collect your records and then change your number. I guess I don't need that, though. Now you're just somebody that I used to know. Now that's a song about a romantic relationship, but how many of us have somebody that we used to know in our lives? There was a breakdown of some kind, and it's just easier to cut and run. This is not the way of Jesus. Especially among two people that call themselves Christians. (coughs) People leave church communities all the time because of conflict. I'm just going to go to a church across town because this person goes to that church. You get a big church and like you can go to multiple services. Like I go to the nine o'clock because the 11 o'clock that person goes to and I can't talk to them. Can't even be seen in the same room as them. And this is not the way that it should be. When you have hurt someone, Jesus says, you go to them and fix it. And you should make it a priority. But then, this is such a great thing about Jesus. Listen to what he says in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go to him. Tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. So now the shoe is on the other foot. You have been harmed by someone else. And and you'd logically go like, well, whenever they're ready to come and apologize, we will have a talk. But no, Jesus says, it's still on you to go fix it. So what does that do for us as the people of God? Everyone in Jesus' church should be jumping towards reconciliation in conflict. We should be eager, whether we've hurt someone or been hurt by someone, to get together and fix it. Paul says this is the natural outworking of the gospel. Listen to him in 2 Corinthians 5. Everything is from God who has reconciled himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness is a word in the Bible that could also easily be translated justice and it has to do with people or people in God that are in right relationship with one another. And this is the heart of the gospel. God is out of right relationship with us God pursues us in our sin to reconcile, and then he equips us to be agents of reconciliation with one another. This is what Pastor Ray Ortland calls gospel culture. If we really believe that the gospel is true, it should change us into people that live lives that reflect that radical truth. The all-powerful, holy-loving, supreme ruler of the universe loves me so much that he assumed frail, finite humanity and suffered and died to save me. That's life-altering. We should be marveling at that. And consequently, our lives should be so full of love and grace that people look in from the outside and say, in a good way, what is wrong with you Christians? Why are you so loving? Why do you care so much about one another? Because it's not that we won't hurt each other. That's not, the, that's not the community that Jesus has created. We're all broken people but it's how will we respond to one another when we hurt one another. So if you find yourself hurt by someone or that you have hurt someone else, fix it. Do whatever you can to make it right. Forgiveness begins with God. Forgiveness also begins with you, but then forgiveness chooses to let go. Verse four, Esau ran to meet him, hugged him, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Then they wept. When Esau looked up and saw the women and the children, he asked, "Whose are these with you?" And he answered, "The children God has graciously given to your servant." Then the slaves and their children approached him and bowed down. Leah and her children also approached and bowed down. And then Joseph and Rachel approached and bowed down. Jacob doesn't make any excuses for his behavior. He doesn't. He's constant in his affirmation that God is the source of his blessings. God's grace is the motivation for reconciliation. This is helpful when we are in conflict, whether we've, whatever side of the conflict we're on, we need to be able to own our part of the conflict. And that part is probably larger than we think it is. Jacob could have said, you know, mom made me do it, honestly. I didn't want to, but got to listen to mom. And she was the one that made me do it. Or, you know, if you cared more about the birthright, I wouldn't have been so concerned that you wouldn't have managed it well and I wouldn't have needed to take it from you so that it would have been cared for. I was just looking out for our family's legacy. I mean, there's all kinds of things that Jacob could have said to justify himself and his behavior and he doesn't do it. And Esau is so gracious here. He's willing to let go of the hurt that his brother inflicted on him And he seems to genuinely want to know Jacob's family. And I think the reminder is that we have all been wronged, right? All of us in this room, we could sit down and list names of people that have hurt us. Some of us have been deeply wounded by the sin that others have committed against us. And the question is, are you willing to let go of that and offer forgiveness to the one that hurt you? Hebrews 12, 14 and 15 says, "'Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many.'" Notice the way that that passage lays out the argument. Pursue peace, which comes from the grace of God. Do this without bitterness because bitterness is gonna harm a lot of people been said that unforgiveness is the poison we drink, hoping others will die. It seems like the right thing to do, like you're holding on to them, but really they're holding on to you. We, The, the common phrase today is someone who lives rent-free in your head. The reality is for unforgiveness will destroy you because it turns inward. Frederick... Uh, Buchner says this about anger, which is correlated with bitterness. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come. To savor to the last toothsome morsel, both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back, in many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. I don't know if you resonate with that. I I, I do. There's something exciting about being angry with somebody, about being in conflict, about being right and they're wrong, and it just spins in your mind. You ever do the thing where you, like, replay the argument, but you've got better arguments now, and they've got worse ones, and it goes much differently in your mind than it did in real life? (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I always win my arguments in my head. But here's the thing. If, if we are going to be people who walk in the way of Jesus, we need to learn to let go of wrongs. We, learn, we need to learn to forgive others. Or the bitterness and the anger and the resentment that we hold on to will kill us. Next, forgiveness makes it right. Look at verse 8. So Esau said, what do you mean by this whole procession I met? To find favor with you, my Lord, he answered, I have enough, my brother, Esau replied, keep what you have. But Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor with you, take this gift from me. For indeed I have seen your face, and it is like seeing God's face since you have accepted me. Please take my present that was brought to you because God has been gracious to me and I have everything I need. So Jacob urged him until he accepted. So this whole section is kind of a kind of Middle Eastern back and forth where they're kind of like trying to outdo one another in being deferential. They're kind of bartering. But notice Jacob's gift here is meant to make amends for what he stole from his brother. Now we talked last week about how whether what his motives were in doing this. Was he being kind of crafty and conniving to try to pay off his brother or was he doing it out of a, a heart of forgiveness? And the text doesn't really say, but here... Jacob uses this word, um, where's that, present, please take my present. It's the same word that's been used throughout the book and translated blessing. So Jacob has a reason for this gift. Please take my blessing. And this is really important. Jacob realizes that forgiveness, at least in this case, requires restitution, Sometimes we, you know, like, like my buddy Phil, uh, I, I, I hurt you, I wronged you. Ah, don't worry about it, it's fine. All is forgiven. And many times, that's enough, right? Like, I'm grateful for that. 99% of the time, we're probably good at that point. First Peter 4 says, above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. And if we are people who are walking in love, 99% of the conflict that we can get into can just be resolved. I'm hurt. Someone confesses. I forgive them. We move on. Everything is fine. But not always, right? If, if the sin that's committed against you dishonors God and His church has seriously damaged the relationship. If it poses a threat of harm to someone else or poses a threat of harm to the other person, there are serious situations where an offense may require restitution. Maybe that's a financial payment or a loss of trust or reevaluation of the relational dynamics, or maybe just time and space to rebuild what was lost. Jacob can't give back his father's blessing. It's not his to give but he's going to do what he can to make it right. He wants to give a blessing as much as he is able back to his brother. There's no way to completely repay what he took, but he's going to try. And when we wrong someone significantly, just assuming that, they're, that we're gonna say sorry and they're gonna say, I forgive you, might not be enough. And this might be a situation where you need to bring a kind of, impartial third party and to say, you know what, you should really do in this situation is you probably owe them some money for what you took from them or what you broke or, or wh- um, what was done. Or, or, hey, you know what, the way you damaged this relationship, you're going to need to give them some space because you need to rebuild that trust that you broke. And it should, you can't expect them to just go back to normal. Sometimes there are costs to our sin even when we are forgiven. And lastly, this morning, forgiveness doesn't always fix things. In verse 12, Esau said, Let's move on, and I'll go ahead of you. Jacob replied, My Lord knows that the children are weak, and I have nursing flocks and herds. If they are driven hard for one day, the whole herd will die. Let my Lord go ahead of his servant. I will continue on slowly at a pace suited to the livestock and the children, and I will come to my Lord at Seir. Esau said, Let me leave some of my people with you. But he replied, Why do that? Please indulge me, my Lord. That day, Esau started on his way back to Seir, but Jacob went to Succoth. He built a house for himself and shelters for his livestock. That is why the place was called Succoth. After Jacob came to Padamoram, he he arrived safely at Shechem in the land of Canaan and camped in front of the city. He purchased a section of the field where he had pitched his tent from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of silver. And he set up an altar there and called it God, the God of Israel. So what's going on here? There's a couple possibilities. Maybe Jacob is still struggling with his old nature some. He's not sure he can trust Esau. Esau invites him over to his house, basically. And Jacob's like, no, I can't go. It'll be fine, you know, and has all of these excuses. And it's possible that this is the case. It's interesting that this chapter doesn't call Jacob by the new name he just got. Remember in the last chapter, God renamed him Israel. And usually a name change is a big deal in the Bible. After Abram has his name changed to Abraham, his name Abram isn't used anymore. But this chapter continues to use the name Jacob. So maybe it's trying to clue us into the fact that Jacob's not quite uh, sure about Esau and he's saying things that he thinks Esau wants to hear, but he doesn't really mean them. But it's also possible that this whole back and forth is just kind of more Middle Eastern hospitality and bartering. Like, you know, you, you meet someone and you have a conversation and you're like, you know, we should, we should have our families get together for dinner sometime. And they're like, yeah, we totally should. Let's do it. And both of you just know that's never going to happen. Like, that, that's a thing. That could be what's going on here. That Jacob is trying desperately not to say out loud the fact that, like, I just don't really want to go with you. And Esau is allowing him that space to not admit that. But either way, regardless of the motivations here, Esau and Jacob, they don't go off together arm in arm. There's forgiveness, but things aren't, you know, back to normal. There's not complete restoration There's still distance in that relationship. We read in chapter 36, Esau took his wives, sons, daughters, and all the people of his household, as well as his herds and all his flocks and the property he had acquired in Canaan. And he went to a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too many for them to live together. And because of their herds, the land where they stayed could not support him. See, the bottom line was Jacob took Esau's right to the land of Canaan. He stole that from him, and it was not something he could give back. Esau had to leave. He had to go find another place to live because Jacob was taking over this space. And it's possible that this was a friendly parting, but we don't really know. In in chapter 35, we read that Isaac lived 180 years. He took his last breath and died, and he was gathered to his people, old and full of days. His sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. So there's still family here. They apparently don't hate each other. But I think the reality that we see is that sometimes true, real, honest forgiveness does not end in restoration and full repair of relationship. A marriage can be damaged by an unfaithful spouse and we all love the story that ends with healing over time and a relationship that is closer to God and to one another. But sometimes even when there is forgiveness, there can be divorce. Former friends can work out their issues, but sometimes the relationship just never gets back to what it was before. And we can hope for that and pray for that in this life, but it's never a guarantee. The real guarantee is that the hope that we have as Christians is that one day everything will be fixed by Jesus. In Revelation 21, we read, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. and The sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. There will be a time when Jesus is gonna right all the wrongs, when all of the pain and the sorrow and the relational friction and the struggle and the stress are gonna be taken care of. And we, we long for that to be the case now. We long for broken relationships to be reconciled and beautiful gospel stories to be told of the work of the Spirit into people's lives, but that doesn't always happen, but it will happen someday. There is not gonna be two Christians in the new earth like that aren't talking to each other. Like that is not going to happen. Jesus is going to bring reconciliation to all of the people of God. And for us today, forgiveness is a decision. John Long, who is the head of, of peacemaking in our covenant community, he goes around to all the different churches. Well, any church that asks him to come resolve conflict He goes to to teach on conflict resolution. He says, forgiveness is a decision to obey Christ, to trust Christ, to hand off punishment to Christ, and to release the person from your debt. As we've talked a little bit about forgiveness, whether seeking forgiveness when you've wronged someone or accepting the forgiveness of someone else, My guess is that there are people, there are faces, there are names that come up in everybody's heart and mind. And the encouragement, the exhortation to pursue forgiveness is a difficult one, but it is a rewarding one. It is a Jesus-centered one. It is, is one that protects you from broken, bitter um, resentment, and releases you to live a life of freedom. As you reflect on maybe pain you've experienced and the idea of forgiving others for it, maybe you're thinking that the best way to never be hurt is to never let someone close enough to hurt you. Maybe that's been your experience is you were hurt in an incredibly deep way and you're never going to let that happen again. And so you guard yourself from that kind of relationship. You guard that part of your heart from being open to pain again. And that makes sense. We we're we are self protective people. We want, we want to keep ourselves safe. But as we close, I want to read you a, a quote by C. S. Lewis about the consequences of that philosophy. Lewis says, There is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. that's my encouragement for us this morning that we would be a community that is marked by forgiveness because the gospel has breathed life into us, because Jesus pursued us, died for us, redeemed us, and equipped us to love others well. That sometimes in the process of forgiveness, there are things that we need to do to make it right. And to be encouraged that even if relationships aren't completely put back together in this life, they will be in the kingdom of God. Let's do some Q&R. What if, oh, it's like a three-parter. What if both parties feel wronged, but neither feels like they're the ones who did the wrong? Both parties feel like they are the victims and have been unable to reconcile to the point that they're not even talking. As the outsider of the situation, I see that forgiveness is necessary on both sides, but I can't force them, unfortunately, and do not know what to do to make things better. So I think the first question is, are you called to make things better? I think we we see things going on like this, maybe with friends or in family, and we think it's automatically my job to stand in the gap and be the person that brings reconciliation. That may be true, but it may also not be true. And anytime you're working with people, and this is This is counseling. This is not something that that just pastors do or counselors. We are all called to be ministers of reconciliation. Anytime you think you might be in that situation, you need to seek the Lord and make sure the Holy Spirit is leading you to intervene in the situation. Because if he's not, then potentially you're just gonna make things a a lot worse. It might not be the time for your intervention. If it is, it usually takes a third party who is not in the mess to help negotiate that kind of struggle. Um, that can take various forms, but it may be that as a, it's, is this, um, I don't know, it doesn't say your place in the situation, but like I'm assuming you you know them well, maybe you're, you're related to both of them. That, that may take you out of the running as the impartial counselor. Maybe not, but it, it might make more sense to invite them into the process of working with someone who knows nothing about the situation, a Christian counselor or a pastor who, who can speak with a sense of, of um, impartiality into the issue. I think as well, I and mean, we talk about this for a lot, but I think as well, there is a, there has to be a willingness for two people or at least one person to want to come to the table. And if you feel like God is leading you to play a role in that, it may be the right thing to do to remind them of the Word of God. Remind them when, when they generally, when, when something happens and that other person comes up in conversation, they're, you're going to see them respond with resentment or bitterness. Talk about that. What, what makes you say that? Why do you feel that way? Do you think that's how Jesus wants you to see this person? And you know them, and you know how they would hear those things, and that's probably not the right words, way to say that. But gently point them back to the gospel. Because if two people are at an impasse and they're unwilling to see their own part, they need to, be, they need to have their hearts softened by Jesus. They're walking in pride, bitterness is growing, resentment. I mean, we should all be people, if we were honest, we could all get in a line and confess 100 things that we've done wrong this week. And so to be in a position to where like, I have no part to play in this. I have done nothing wrong. Really? And I say that knowing we, we can all get there. I've, I've lived that many times. But if you feel like you're called to kind of begin to broker some reconciliation, just bring it up in conversations with one or the other with them. You know, like what, what makes you say that? Why do you feel that way? Do you think that's really the heart of God for that person? And use those things as, as just a way to kind of rub off the edges. And it might take a long time. And, and ultimately... You are an instrument of the Holy Spirit who is working behind the scenes and in greater ways than you possibly ever could. Um, So, I would want you to hear that it is not your job to fix this relationship. It is your job to be willing to do what God calls you to do, to be a light to the situation. Um, And then, most importantly, just commit to praying for them, like all the time, and the, the such frustrating thing about that is that God very often, and I don't know why he does this, but he takes a long time to answer those kind of prayers, doesn't he? There, a, there, there is a lot of work that needs to be done to heal hearts that are bitter towards one another. And I, I mean, I believe that God could show up in their bedroom and knock them upside the head and say, say sorry, like I do to my kids, right? But he doesn't do that. He just chooses to work slowly and patiently, and sometimes it takes years for people to reconcile. So commit to prayer for them. Uh, Commit to prayer about your role in the situation, and if you feel strongly that your role is to say something, just bring the gospel to bear in the conversations. Remind them of who Jesus is and how they have been forgiven much, and um, allow the Holy Spirit to use those things to begin to soften their heart.